0: Sitting in the maternity ward of Dallas Methodist Hospital, 30-year-old Nestor Oswald Hernandez told his girlfriend that, We are both going to die today, and whoever comes in this room is going to die with us. Hernandez, a violent offender out on early parole in Texas, executed a social worker and a nurse as they entered the room of his girlfriend and newborn baby, according to a Dallas police arrest warrant. Hernandez had just accused his girlfriend of cheating on him. He pistol-whipped her and fatally shot the two health care workers before a security officer wounded him. Hernandez had a long rap sheet. He was on parole for an aggravated robbery. In 2015, Hernandez and a female accomplice attacked a woman who was returning home from work. They taped the victim's hands together and taped over her eyes. They broke her nose and fractured her eye during the robbery. Hernandez stole her purse, car, and $3,000 cash from a school fundraiser. A year before the hospital murder, Hernandez was released early on parole with a special electronic monitoring condition. Hernandez was granted permission to be at the hospital with his girlfriend during and after the baby's delivery. He was wearing an active ankle monitor. Shortly after the shooting, Dallas Police Chief Eddie Garcia called the killings an abhorrent failure of our criminal justice system and said, we give violent criminals more chances than our victims. Joining me to discuss early release policies is my co-host, former U.S. Prosecutor Bill Johnston, and the Chief of Police of Prosper, Texas, a suburban community located north of Dallas, Doug Kowalski, who's also served with the Dallas Police Department. Chief, we've seen this horror movie before. Uh, you know, as you know, Bill and I were involved in doing the documentary uh, about Call Freed to Kill, about this thing happening 30 years ago. Here we are again. It looks like the criminal justice system has got a very short memory.
1: Uh, I have to agree with you, yeah. those that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it.
0: Well, in this case, the parolee had on uh, an ankle monitor was under electronic monitoring, and we, we're seeing this across the country, early releases, and they will say, well, they were being monitored, but there's a you can't. Put public safety on the line with that. Bill and I, we've both well seen it. Tell us what your experience has been with pl- electronic monitoring because I've covered cases where they committed a murder like this guy did while wearing the monitor.
1: Yeah, electronic monitoring is uh, really doesn't do anything to prevent any crime, doesn't protect anybody, doesn't make any safe, uh, make you any safer in your community. What it actually does is if they commit a crime, It allows them to track and see if you were in the area. that's it. It's after the fact. It's it's an investigative tool. It does nothing to increase anybody's security or safety.
2: I wonder why people have such a um, misconception about it. Um, People, the average person would probably think, well, they're being monitored, which means someone like a police officer has a a map and they're showing where the person is on a map. And if they leave the area, something alerts and the siren goes off and police run over there. And of course, it's uh, couldn't be, you know, further from the truth. There's no there's no monitoring like that. It's usually a contract company. It's not law enforcement okay. normally. And at best, they get noti- notified that the monitors run out of batteries or perhaps a person's left an area. But there's no one actively. Uh, monitoring in a law enforcement way, where all these monitors are, it's, it's a little like when uh, Robert and I worked on the serial killer Kenneth McDuff. He was on parole and had misbehaved and uh, in a small way before he started killing again. And no one, there, there was no state agency looking for absconding parolees. Parolees just kind of quit reporting, but. Texans had a sense of security. Oh, well, certainly someone's out to look for those guys. There was no agency. We up-create one later, but there was no agency. Why do you think people um, miss that?
1: I think the general public probably believes that if somebody's wanted, there's an active group of people going out and actively pursuing them. Uh, most of what police work has become outside of some elite groups select groups like US marshal service that are going under after particular individuals most of your local law enforcement is involved in responding to calls answering the particular crimes making the reports filing the warrants and then there's pretty much just a hope that they'll get stopped for some other reason and checked by your average patrol officer and see if there's a warrant out there for arrest that is actually how it is really happening, but uh, it's, uh, it's frightening. I've heard judges
0: defend the re- release of, on low bail of capital murder defendants saying, well, you know, they're on monitoring. But there is no one sitting there monitoring. No, you know that there's not an alarm going to go off if they violate. They go, Lee, go to an area they're not supposed to be in. That's all later after the fact. Mm -hmm. People, uh, the average person may not know that the criminal knows
2: that. The criminal knows that a pair of bolt cutters, medium size, not too heavy duty, can snip off the monitor. They do it all the time. I would dare say in Texas today, you know, fifty electronic monitors have been cut off by uh, bolt cutters, and certainly that will let a contract company know at some point the monitor is failing to work. Well, that afternoon, maybe they'll look at it, maybe they'll check it against the list the next day, and perhaps they'll call someone. But it's nothing immediate about it. And unfortunately, a lot of really violent crimes are committed right after someone leaves the area they're supposed to be in or cuts off their monitor. Uh, And there's no one that is, no one in law enforcement is monitoring that on a minute-by-minute or even hour-by-hour basis.
1: Right. When they... uh cut it off with a bolt cutter or whatever they use. Uh, It's intent to go off the grid, and then they're going to go commit whatever series of crimes they intend to go off the grid to commit, and and then it's, where are they? They're on the loose again when they really should be incarcerated. There's a uh, crime prevention triangle, and if that's what we're really interested in is preventing crime, which is what your average citizen should be Mm -hmm. interested in, not apprehension That's after the fact. And all law enforcement agencies should be interested in preventing crime. Well, that has uh, three sides. And the first side is uh, desire. The criminal has a desire to commit a crime. There's really not much anyth- anything anybody can do to stop that. The other side of the triangle is uh, ability. To have the ability to commit the crime. Well... We'll get into that in a little bit. The third side is opportunity. So most of us, law enforcement, we get involved in trying to reduce the opportunity of people to commit a crime. And we harden targets. Uh, We do educational to the uh, citizens, educational programs. But eventually, you know, that's defense. Eventually, somebody's going to go out and commit a crime. And that's when we have to go in after the fact and remove their ability by incarcerating them. I think the gap
2: here, this is just me. I think the gap here that exists between the public and this issue, but more importantly, between the uh, certain judges, certain district attorneys who, as I say, have forgotten that they're not defense attorneys. They're the district attorney. The district attorney's job is to prosecute and do justice. Mm-hmm. At any rate, I think the problem is they don't get the vast difference between. Sort of plebeian, ordinary crimes, maybe theft, which should be handled, should be prosecuted, where mm-hmm. someone may not need to stay in jail pending, and violent crime. Right. Violent criminals are this smaller percentage, of course. I don't know, 10%, whatever it may be. But violent criminals um, respond to punishment or incarceration differently. And if you don't punish them, you don't incarcerate them after they've been caught, let's say someone commits a murder, and a day later they're out. Right. That is one of the most dangerous things society can do, or a DA or weak judge can do, because it's almost a reward to them. It's certainly a a card they think they can play, um, and I. So I think that a problem here is that many district attorneys treat all criminals the same. Violent criminals. Someone steals a loaf of bread. They're totally different. The world of violent crime requires a a focused approach, I think, uh, that, that um, has a direct consequence, including incarceration, pending trial, if you can. All right. This is what the federal, federal bail reform system was designed for. Violent crime, serious drug trafficking, and violent crime was given a presumption under federal law that they should be detained.
0: Yes. Period. And in the case uh, that I talked about earlier where the— uh, Parolee is charged with, you know, executing two healthcare workers at that hospital. Right. He's out on early parole. You only had, I, I want to say to the parole board members, you only had to look at him because his neck is covered with gang tattoos. Yes. Coming down his cheek, off each eye are the teardrops. Talk about that, what that means alone when you see that.
1: Well, generally, that means when they have that teardrop tattoo, it means they've already killed somebody. Generally, in prison, uh, he had gang tattoos, he was affiliated with the gang, he was already in there as a violent offender, so why you would want to release him back into the regular unknowing, unwitting civil population is is beyond me,
2: Robert. We went through this. we've done this exact thing yes. as far as parole, where people served a fraction of their sentence. The parole board didn't care or was corrupt about it right and you your exposure of that on In your reports over many months, helped cause the largest prison construction project in the free world's history. There used to be Texas prisons in a few areas, Huntsville mostly, and now they're all over Texas. That's to a large degree because of Robert Riggs. Robert Riggs exposed what happened in the McDuff case, and it caused this reaction by the legislature. We have, I think, plenty of prison cells. Why are we not keeping people in on
0: on their uh, sentences anymore? And again, you need a way of common sense sorting out the violent from the nonviolent, because we know the violent is a small percentage. That's who you need to keep there. But is this a softer
2: approach? Is this one why do you think the institutions are are behaving this way where they want
0: to let violent people out? Well, I heard they're feeling a crunch again.
1: Yeah. Overcrowding.
0: Over, yeah. Backing up in the county jails and all. And this is the uh you know, unfortunately some innocent person ends up being the victim of it. Let's talk about another issue we're we're seeing, and that is theft is no longer
1: a crime. That that seems to be uh, the trend that's going on right now. Uh, Theft is viewed as just, uh, you know, probably behavior that's found on, but not really criminal. Uh, We have quite a few district attorneys across the country that are just— um, just turning a blind eye towards anything less than felony theft. As a matter of fact, in Dallas County, the district attorney here has been turning a blind eye towards a uh, theft between $100 and $750. Uh, I just heard on the radio today that he's uh, just been reelected and they may reconsider that policy. But it just means basically you're free to go commit the theft. Now, most police departments in the area have decided We're still going to do our job. We're still going to make the arrest. We're still going to take the person off the street. It's up to the district attorney whether or not to follow through and file the charges. The problem with that is, like I was saying earlier, if you don't remove the people's ability to commit crime, if it's catch and release, they're going to go right back out there and commit more crime, which really hurts any kind of crime prevention efforts. If it's catch and release, we're putting people in jail, they're going right back out on the streets, they're going to turn right back to the crime. Um, It's repeat, and it's just strange. Uh, Everyone in law enforcement scratches their head over that because we all know that the folks that you capture have probably committed a minimum of 10 other crimes before you capture them. Now you finally got them where they can't commit crimes anymore because they're incarcerated, either a waiting bond or they've been convicted, if you just turn them right back out on the street, they're going to just commit more and more crimes. It, it's, it's senseless. It's mind-boggling.
2: And while it may be that theft, people uh, of that mindset, like the DAs that do that, their mindset is, well, theft, it's, it's, it's soft, it's maybe out of need, and there's some of that, I guess. But mostly it's uh, because they don't want to, I mean, they don't want to do something honestly. They'd rather do this honestly. There are videos out of California of stores, you know, eight or ten people going into a store and just looting the store and brought open daylight and walking out and laughing. Um, And I don't have you know, store owners can make it. I guess they they don't after a while. But another issue, I think, is that theft, while it's normally um, just a, a taking of something, If a person resists that, it's often what we call theft from person, where you're actually taking from the person. Maybe you're pulling it. And then if there's um, any more to it, where there's some violence, it's often a robbery or become aggravated robbery. And I think you'll find many of the thefts are committed by people who have done theft from person or aggravated robbery or robbery. It's just that it's so easy now. They'll just take it. So what are we supposed to do? Open the door and invite them in. And it's, it's just completely, it's a breakdown at a level that's, I think, uh, unacceptable.
1: Right. It uh, escalates. It escalates from a theft to, like you said, a theft from person. If the person. If the victim offers any kind of resistance to try and hang on to their property, it then escalates to some form of robbery. And if they really resist, then it could become an aggravated robbery. I mean, we've all seen the photos of women going out to their cars and somebody tries to snatch their purse and they hang on and the person... Drives off with the with the uh, woman being dragged through the street. Well, I was in New York City recently
0: and I saw an example of how they're trying to reduce the opportunity. I I, I was in Midtown, nice area. I, the police precinct is by the hotel I stay at, and around the corner by the police precinct, I went to a pharmacy. Every shelf in that store, I don't care if it's shampoo or aspirin. Is behind a plexiglass, clear plexiglass locking mm-hmm. compartment. Everything. You have to go find a clerk to come over with the key, and then they'll kind of walk you to the cash register. I mean
2: do we want to live like this? I It's preposterous. It's not well, America. I've been, in, I've been in Central and South America, where that's the case, yeah. where everything's stolen, and people right. just are afraid of the criminals, but we don't
0: do that here. Well, it occurred to me, I thought, you know There's the precinct house right over here. If it's that bad here, what is it like in other neighborhoods?
1: Exactly. I was a history major, so I do have a tendency and with my age—I don't have to go back too far, even in my own Uh, lifetime—go back and look at how much society has changed. I remember when the prisons where the bad guys were incarcerated, and then people lived in open homes and unlocked doors and and unlocked windows, and now society has completely changed. People have—because we keep letting prisoners out, and we keep getting uh, assaulted by crime. So people have turned their houses and their businesses into the prison system. They lock themselves in. They put alarms on the house. They put alarms on their property. They lock it up. They put it in cases. And it's like we all live in prison because mm-hmm. the bad guys are out amongst us. So you're the chief of a growing, booming, very
0: affluent community north of Dallas up by uh, Jerry Jones uh, practice stadium, yes. um, Not The, far from the Star, and it's very, very upscale, highly educated uh, residents. What are you seeing up there? Because people in these neighborhoods often feel they're secure and they're living in the bubble.
1: Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. We're actually seeing several different things. One is they do believe they've come home and they've gotten to the bubble and they're safe. So we have organized uh, BMV Sussex, burglary of motor vehicles coming up from Dallas and stolen cars, driving up to Prosper, trying all the cars. If it's unlocked, they'll open it. If it's locked, they'll move on. But a lot of these cars are left unlocked. They'll pop the door. They'll go through. And people are uh, leaving behind wallets, purses, all their ID, all their credit cards, uh, computers, cameras. But what's really scary is pistols, guns in their car. Now, all of a sudden, these suspects who were theft suspects a moment ago or burglary and motor vehicle suspect are now armed. And we have videos of them from the home securities where they're getting out and covering each other with pistols in case the homeowner comes out. They've stolen the cars because some people leave their uh, remote starts in there Mm -hmm. and they'll steal their car and they'll dump the one they've stolen from Dallas and leave leave that here. So we've been going after that from both angles, going after the suspects, but also trying to harden the target and tell everybody, make them aware of it. But the other things that we've been seeing is uh, one of my favorite movies is uh, Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. And we're building it. And 99% of the people we want to come, but we're also attracting that 1%. It's a destination with all the commercial. And uh, we have organized theft rings that are actually coming into our town uh, because they're hoping to take advantage of maybe a smaller police department plus the quick access to uh, State Highway 289, U.S. Highway 380, the Dallas North Toll Road uh, to travel around and make their escape. And so they're coming in and we're going after them also. But what we find is a lot of times they're only viewed as Property criminals, and it's less than $750. Now, not so much in Collin County. Our district attorney has gone after them with a vengeance. So some of them are surprised because they've come up from Dallas, and they're like, well, no, you're not supposed to follow me. You're not supposed to chase me in the car. Well, we've chased them, and we've caught them. And same thing with the organized theft suspects. The RDA will take those cases, and uh, we're breaking up the organized theft rings. They're coming in from Louisiana, some of them. The ones from Dallas are in the country illegally, from uh, initially Guatemala and now Venezuela. But these are the things we're we're dealing with. We our violent crime has, fortunately, knock on wood, is is lower. But we have some uh, folks from Dallas that have been followed. They work in Dallas, they get followed home and be get targeted for a crime, a robbery. Somebody will jump out of a the vehicle, point a gun at them. And uh, we had a lady who had her purse stolen because of where she worked, and they thought she had a lot of money. Fortunately, we have those two in custody. But uh, we've become a destination. We've gone from a small suburban, uh bedroom community that was mostly residential and now with all of our commercial uh people are coming there and like i said 99 percent were happy they're coming
0: you know you had a, you've had cases up there where it kind of showed the uh, how enterprising they are because they were following strippers yes home yes watching at the clubs they've gotten a lot of tips money and mm-hmm.
1: boom that, that's exactly the case I was talking about, but yes, uh, they'll do that. They also have this other, it's not just Prosper, but this, uh called jugging, where they'll see somebody go to the a bank and go to the commercial window. They're assuming they've gotten a lot of money. They sit back in the back parking lot. The individual will drive off and before they make it back to their business, they may stop into a Seven Eleven or mm-hmm. some other store to get something, and leave all the money in the front seat. And when they come back out to their car, someone has smashed the front window and taken their uh, bank bags. So,
2: But what I'm hearing, that's troubling and we're glad you're on it and know your department is very aware of those things and keeps after them and you have a district attorney that's getting after them. Right. And that's what we want so you're discouraging it and we're not in that prosperity we're not overrun with it it's not plaguing it's but it exists you have to be aware of it because if you fight it aggressively properly ethically you can keep a lid on it right and uh, many years ago when i was running a us attorney's office in in Waco Texas we had a big problem with crack cocaine mm-hmm. it was coming to central Texas from Houston The Cali cartel was uh, managing it fairly well. They had uh, their larger quantities coming in through the port of Houston or elsewhere. And the Cali cartel would then sell crack cocaine in quarter pound and pound quantities to Waco, Texas. And so we started investigating any number of conspiracy cases and prosecuting people. And we started prosecuting, because of the way the federal law is, people that didn't come to Waco. But they were, their drugs were coming. Mm-hmm. So we prosecuted any number of Cali Colombians who were in Houston who were selling their wares in central Texas, Temple, Waco. And it, we did it really hard for about two years. And we won every one of them. We sent hundreds of them to federal prison. And there, was a, there came a, a point where before anybody of that organization sold crack, they would ask the person, are you going to Waco? You know, Waco. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yes or no. We're not selling. They would not sell to someone that was going to Central Texas with their drugs because we'd sent so many of them to federal prison. That that sounds corny or whatever. That's really how it works. Criminals do not want to go to jail for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. If they believe that's a real present threat to them, they won't commit the crime of the go somewhere else. And so that's what you're you're aggressive uh, stance on that and your pursuit, literal pursuit of those and the DA prosecuting it, that's what you do. You can change the whole game. If Dallas County, for in- just for instance, or the U.S. Attorney's Office in Dallas, you undertook a big project against violent criminals, let's mm-hmm. say using the Armed Career Criminal Act, something like that, you'll see the numbers change. Yes. It happens.
0: You know, as I mentioned, I was in New York City recently. I know you started there in policing. Yes. Mm-hmm. As a reporter, I covered things there in the worst of times, and I saw the change in which uh, Times Square became like Disneyland. And my sense there, and I talked—I I was there doing a podcast with with uh, retired officers, but was with active officers bus- by According to them, it's going backwards and going backwards fast. I, it, it, every time I had a meeting with somebody, I'd say, now, Robert, you know, don't get on the subway while you're here. Mm-hmm. So they're having murders on the subways. There were two while I was there. Uh, and now we've had the case of the, uh, the woman who was jogging uh, along the pier where the aircraft carriers, popular tourist area, mm-hmm. popular area, jogging, tacked from behind. The guy had like 28 arrests, and once they caught him on that they found out there were others but there's a lot of criticism about the policing and that they didn't do grid by grid searches and stuff following that what's your sense of what's happening there at, at, with your experience in policing now and your past experience
1: well uh new york city when i left was in the late 70s uh got to experience uh, for a couple of years, the mid-'70s, and uh, that's when uh, Mayor John Lindsay yes. was trying to yeah. encourage all uh, tourists to come there, and he was calling it Fun City. And that was kind of the logo, the uh, branding that they were using to get tourists to come. But the police and the fire departments came out, and they called it Fear City. And they were trying to warn people and tell them exactly what it was, what was going on, how to be, you know, don't come here. It's not a safe place. Um, Somewhere right after that, uh, Lindsey was out of office, new mayor came in, Abraham Beam. And uh, Mayor Beam uh, looked around and said, well, the city's in financial crisis due to some uh, mismanagement that was done by the prior administrations. And he put a freeze on the hiring of uh, all the police officers and, uh, and firefighters. And uh, they went through the normal attrition of retirements, and the numbers were dwindling. Uh, Apparently, they weren't dwindling fast enough because the freeze became a layoff. And the first round of layoffs was 3,000 police officers and later rose to about 5,000 police officers. So they had gotten down to bare minimums. I think what we're seeing is history repeating itself again. Now, they're not putting a freeze on her and not laying them off, but what's happening is no one wants to work there anymore. Nobody's applying there. They don't want to go there. They're not feeling the support and the love. And you really have to feel the support of the community if you want to do this as a career. Otherwise, it's uh, it's, it's a thankless thankless endeavor to just continue to throw yourself into the breach for people who don't really care. But I think that's what is happening in New York City right now. And uh, do and there's no support. Basically. Because of all the prosecutions of police officers across the country, not just New York City, officers are standing down. So those that you have are really not really proactive. They're taking time to carefully consider what their options are before they do something that puts their life and liberty at great risk. So I think that's particularly what's happening in New York City now, though. There's been so much... So much uh, bashing of the police that they're having trouble filling their ranks. And a lot of the officers are leaving and going elsewhere. Their attrition there is very high.
2: I think they collapsed one of the units, which was sort of an intelligence, street intelligence unit, mm-hmm. which was apparently key to keeping things going. Yeah, Going. 600 and, officers.
0: Mm. What a lot of people didn't know is that the New York City ran the largest taxi cab company in the city. But these were all undercover officers. And so— They'd be out and they could see what was going on. And, uh, but I was there. I'm going to tease our listeners. I was there doing, we're doing a podcast series and we were in the the 28th precinct. I'm sure you remember that. Yes. Nicknamed the Murder Factory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just had this feeling is that reputation coming back? Smallest precinct. It had the, in the 70s when you were there, when I was there, highest number of officers killed in the line of duty, highest murder rate. And we were there with a veteran detective. And, you know, we had a long discussion with him about where is it going to be safe to go up in these precincts, you know, as we're doing this. There was a big discussion. He was finally, no, we're not going to go there.
1: Used to go there, but no, not now. My family was mostly firefighters. I come from a firefighting family. My uncle, however, was an arson investigator, and that was back when the Bronx was burning. Yes. So they were uh, uh, really detectives investigating a lot of criminal cases. And um, I'll tell you, there was, there was parts Bedford-Stuyvesant, the Bronx, the South Bronx. There was, there was places you just did not go. And I know there was a lot of folks that did not, even back in the 70s, did not want to go see the New York Yankees play the home team because it required that you take public transportation into the Bronx. It was a scary thing. Uh, it's, it's a shame. Uh, it seemed like with uh, Rudy Giuliani and Bill Branton as the chief of police, they really cleaned things up. And they were firm believers in stop and frisk and the broken windows theory and— uh, it became safe to go again, like you said at um Times square when when I was up there was just the location of drug dealers, pimps, prostitutes, uh stolen merchandise being sold, uh porno shops, and they changed it. I mean when w- Disney opened a store on Times Square, I knew they had won the battle, but it seems like everything's reverted back to uh, you walk down Times Square now, and they got all these little uh I don't know, people set up on sidewalks selling everything that's probably
0: stolen. Well, that's what struck me is that it was the sidewalks were carpeted mm-hmm. with blankets down and knockoff merchandise, purses and all of this stuff for blocks. And there were officers standing around there. In the, in the old days, the officers would have, they'd have put an end to it. They weren't now. And that I thought, uh-oh, bad sign of where we're, we're headed. And that's not acceptable. I think
2: violent crime is the most apolitical thing there is. Democrats, Republicans, independents, everybody want to be safe. Right. And violent crime, when you have a city where this is happening, as you described, it's, it's completely unacceptable. And it's also fixable.
1: Mm-hmm. It's totally fixable. Yes. We
2: have many examples throughout recent history of that. It takes a certain mindset and it can be done ethically. It can be done fairly. It can be done with the sort of caution police need to be exercising in terms of civil rights and liberties right it's It's not that hard. and pro, I always said prosecution's the easiest thing in the world. You can always you you can be on the right side of every case.
1: yeah, if you train your officers uh, with the mindset of uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights as the framework before they're go in in there and enforce any laws, and also the community policing, you know. A lot of those folks, are, they're living in fear of crime. And, uh, but if you get the right mindset and training program going, the officers go in there. And I know when I worked in Dallas and Oak Cliff and even in South Dallas, uh, five years as an officer in Southwest Division and then uh, two years as a sergeant in Southeast and then later uh, two, two, two tours through the narcotics division, the people loved us. The citizens loved us and we were mostly in the not affluent communities, but they are the victims of the crime more often than not. And they loved to see us there doing our job and keeping them safe and keeping the bad guys away. Now, a lot of folks want to make that politically incorrect now, but the bottom line is your, most of your crime, property crime, violent crime is occurring in the uh, communities that aren't that affluent. As a result, that's where police departments are assigning all, most of their troops for crime prevention. And then, yes, there are a lot, a lot more citizen police encounters in those less affluent communities, but this is why. And the real people that are the victims of crime love to see the police in those neighborhoods. Uh, I, I lived it. I witnessed it. I experienced it. Um, the citizens would literally come out. And, and cheer us, especially when we're taking out the crack houses in Oak Cliff. Uh, they, they didn't want them in their neighborhoods either. So it can be done. It can be done correctly. And it's, it's not, a, in my opinion, it's not a politically incorrect to uh, make someone's community safe that they don't have to fear crime. It doesn't matter how much money they have or don't have. They shouldn't have to fear crime. That's exactly right.
0: Any other ideas for what's a citizen to do?
1: I I think if citizens, like I know a lot of departments, it may sound a little corny, but we run things like Citizens Police Academy. Uh, From that, we'll do Citizens on Patrol. A lot of departments run volunteers in policing and come in and help in the station. You can do those things if you have the time. If you don't have the time, just get educated from what's going on in your community, what's going on inside your police department. And, uh, you know, the, the best uh, electorate is the most well-informed electorate, and uh, they can put the right people in office that, that will uh, do the things to keep them safe. You know, I, I am seeing the
0: – I'm on the Ring doorbell network and next door, and it, it, you see the postings. I mean, yes. you'll see postings about gunshots fired now, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Is that helping policing?
1: Yes, Oddly enough, we've had uh, several cases we've been able to solve because of that ring doorbell network, and uh, we get, we're on it, we get in there, and uh, you may pick up something. Do you, we're working one right now, uh, I'm going into a whole lot of details, but it's a hit and run. And it didn't actually pick up the accident, but because of the sound, we can hear the impact and hear an exclamation from the person that was knocked off their bicycle, and that vehicle was going in one direction, and the ring camera, you hear this impact, the exclamation, then you hear a wheel spinning, and then this vehicle comes flying back in the opposite direction it just was in. They're our prime suspect now, and uh, we have some real real good video footage of what vehicle we're looking for. But those, those technology leaps help us a lot. You'll also, uh, a lot of police departments are either using the, uh, License plate reader cameras is what they're invariably called, but uh, uh, Vigilant is one company. Another one that's getting real popular around the Metroplex is called Flock, and they have a series of cameras around, and they get a lot of good video. Uh, I know um, Fort Worth has uh, solved several of their major crimes. It was just a few weeks ago where it, like— Fort Worth was in the news like two, three days in a row and getting in shootings. And that was all from flock cameras that were alerting the officers that this stolen car was in the area or this wanted person was in the area.
0: Now, are these on patrol units or are they stationary?
1: The uh, flock cameras themselves are on uh, stationary. Mm -hmm. Some of the license plate readers, like we have a couple of LPR cameras up in Prosper, they're on uh, on patrol units and they move around. But uh, we're looking more and more to just... For the want of a better term, ring the city with a bunch of flock cameras so we can look at all the entry entryways, exit ways, and then if we have a problem, we have some leads. The other big theft problem we're having in in uh, Prosper is construction theft. We're doing so well and booming. There's a lot of construction going on, and uh, uh, the nature of the construction industry is they'll come into a development or whether it's uh, commercial or uh, residential and they drop off a whole load of construction materials. And then your subcontractors will come in there and that belong there and they'll be getting merchant, you know, what they're doing to do the daily work from the drop off point. And then we have these other enterprising individuals that are trying to blend in and, you know, hide in plain sight and load up their truck and drive in a different direction because of the supply chain issues and the cost of construction materials going up. So. Any kind of camera system is is re- really great in helping us uh deter crime
0: you know I remember working in London and after nine eleven uh, we were covering terrorism, but you could walk a block near Westminster, the seat of government and other places and you you would be on a camera about a hundred times mm-hmm. and you didn't see any cameras they're all embedded in uh, street numbers and everything else you know I remember we were out on the uh Tim's shooting a video like at three in the morning, and here comes some bobbies, and I was like, "There's no one here. It's why we were doing it, so we would be it'd be easy to shoot, not crowds." And they were like, "Guys, we've been watching you on know, camera for block after block after block, and we just wondering, what are you up to? <laughs> you know, after all, it is, you yeah." Know, it is post 9-11. Do you think we're coming to that? Is that a, a solution
1: that we're... I think in the bigger cities, it probably is, and maybe in the uh, suburbs that ring around the urban centers that we're going to have to get more and more technologically based because uh, nobody really has the resources to put a police officer on every corner, but we may have the resources to put cameras out on quite a few corners and keep an eye on things. Again, they're good after the fact. Right. And uh you know if you publish where they are, then somebody'll come along and destroy them so you know the the preventive aspect of it may go away but but they're good after the fact uh, as an investigative tool but there's so much we can do to get out there and and, and do preventive preventive policing and uh it's proactive preventive policing and, and and we have to involve the community you know the days of the police off when I first became a police officer those days are gone where we were the experts we we got this don't worry about it we can handle the whole thing and that was a mistake you know we've gotten far away from that now it's uh it's we have to involve the community our citizens have to be our eyes and ears out mm-hmm. there and work closely with us how do you get that well you got to develop that trust between between the community and the police now in some urban areas maybe maybe that's lacking right now But it can be built back, and it's uh, a matter of, uh, well, Stephen Covey wrote a series of books and training program about the speed of trust, and he says the first two things you need are character and competence. If you're people of character and then you're competent at doing your job, you can rebuild the community trust, and I believe that.
0: And unfortunately, we're in a time where it's uh, hard to even recruit people to try to win the trust. I I saw this when I was in New York City. The academies were way down. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was in that precinct house, there was a lot of young young people in there at the sergeant's desk and everything else because the veterans have said, I'm out, I'm done. And it's because they don't feel respect.
1: Yeah, don't feel the respect, don't feel the support, don't feel the love. And the acts of bad apples have just fallen on everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. One... One bad apple will uh, get us all painted with a broad brush and make us look bad. I still, to this day, and I I teach a lot, too, all kinds of different departments for the Texas Police Chiefs Association. No one can yet explain what um, was going on in the George Floyd incident. Nobody knows what that officer was doing or thinking. We can't explain it. We don't condone it. But yet, we all got painted with a broad brush because of it. The, the other thing I'd like to say is that uh, when we're working on community trust and trying to get recruiting, you know, uh, even uh, you got to teach an old old Doug new tricks. So uh, that, that's why you see this beard here, folks. Uh, I'm trying to encourage the younger generation, go ahead and join us. I was always clean shaven, but you know, I'm I'm trying to show even as chief of police, we're, we're serious, we'll let you grow a beard. Uh, we'll even let you get tattoos that are visible, not on your neck, not on your face, but uh, on your arms. No. I. I haven't gone that far. I don't have any tattoos. But we are really actively trying to recruit this uh, this new generation. Uh, that's who we're going to pass the baton to. So we, we get better get them in the door quickly.
0: Let me get your take on one other thing with all your experience, and that is Yavaldi. Why so many officers stood around and did not act.
1: Um, I've kind of looked at that too, and uh, having been the— prior SWAT commander in, in Dallas for a number of years. The, uh, that's another thing that's difficult to account for. What it appears to me, and I don't have all the information, right. but from what I've been able to see, it appears that the first few responding officers had enough equipment and personnel on scene to go ahead and breach that door. However, they had a chief officer in there with them, and the chief officer was telling everybody to slow down. This is a barricaded person now, and let's slow down. And then everybody else that responded says that you kind of get that in police work. If everybody, if you're like the you know the came in 10, 15 minutes later, and you're going, well, I guess everybody knows what's going on. This is what we're doing. This is what's happening. You you make that major assumption that they've got something going now that makes sense, and I'm adding on to that. I think. I think the flawed decisions were made early on. And I've seen some of the video from inside that school when the uh the school chief was in there and the first few officers, they had rifle plates, they had rifles, uh you know, I and and waiting for a key is they said they were waiting for a key and the door turns out to be unlocked. I mean, you don't you don't need a key. Uh I, I just I don't understand any of that decision making. The kids were in there. Every bit of training that I've had, every bit of training that I've taught, every bit of training is to get in there and stop the bloodshed. And
0: Bill, you've had a theory that's you know, a problem in society now. You want to share it with him and Well, it's much of what you said. it's leadership, lack of leadership.
2: We're promoting leaders within government often who are the most indecisive ones because they don't Create heat for the organization, and so we have a lot of weaklings. To tell you the truth, who are in leadership, the federal government's pretty bad about it. Has been for a long time. Those that promote up are often the, the least uh, decisive. But you know, it's a shame. I, I'm with you. I think I'm glad there were several of them there, and they had were adequately armed. Uh, in my book, uh, one person in law enforcement with a 38 pistol and six round 38 revolver should have gone in there and killed him. It's not that it's and, the, and the, whoever made that decision missed the point too. It's not just that it's barricaded; there are kids bleeding. Yeah, bleeding. You yes. have to do. And and I just have no tolerance for it. But you you can see in the aftermath of it, in some of the remarks that were made and the lack of candor by some of the people there that were supposed to make decisions. I mean, come on. I, but I think it's I think it's indicative or reflective of of a lack of really good leadership, yes. um, and that's uh, that's fixable, too.
1: I, I agree. We have a—well, we've just put it on our police patch, and it's uh, what we firmly believe is the five C's of police leadership. And leadership, of course, doesn't just exist at the top. It exists throughout every level of the organization, particularly in police work, because, you know, no one no one really cares who's sitting in my office at— you know, 1030 at night or on Christmas Eve, it's whoever answers that 911 call. What's your emergency? That's the chief of police. Whoever stops you on traffic or or answers your call uh, that they've been dispatched to, that's, that's the chief of police. So we're trying to get that to permeate the entire organization. And those five C's are character, competence, compassion, courage, and commitment. And, you know, character speaks for itself. We do in-depth background investigations on everybody, and you got to be a person of good moral character and and upright and and just. Otherwise, this job will destroy you. So you you have no business being in police work if you don't have good character. Next one is competence. You got to be able to be trained and be able to think for yourself on your feet. You know, because uh, a lot of these officers are out there by themselves. It's solo patrol. Yeah. Do we do things as teams? Yeah, definitely. But most of it is solo patrol. So they got to be very competent in what they do, know all the laws, know the Constitution. Uh, compassion, well, we're in people business. We've got to have heart for these people that we're, that we're working with. Courage. And it's not just physical courage. Yes, we get to do that a lot in our earlier career, work in the street. You get to display that uh, and you know whether or not you're meant for this job. But as you go higher in the ranks, it's courage to make a decision. To do the right thing. That's right. Do the right thing. Do the best you can and treat other people the way you want to be treated. But you got to make a decision. You can't just – and it just seemed like that school chief just got lost somewhere in there and became indecisive. But it takes a lot of courage to make, make a hard decision and then stick with it. You may not have all the facts at that particular you moment. You may
2: get blamed. You may be I wrong. Tried. But at least make a decision.
1: But – Absolutely. And then the last one is committed. What are we committed to? Well, the community, our profession, but we're also committed to excellence. Be all that we can be. Do the best that you can. And, uh, and that's, that's what we tell our people, and that's what we ask for them. We say, you know, if you follow those five Cs and those three core values, do what's right, do the best you can, treat other people the way you want to be treated, you're not going to stray far from what we want you to do. Just keep those things in mind. You don't need to know every rule, regulation, court decision, Supreme Court decision, every law that's out there, the entire Code of Criminal Procedure. Just through those things and you'll be doing a good job.
0: Chief, you've got the final word with the five C's. That's excellent.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.